Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Scholarly Communication, the podcast about how knowledge gets known. I'm Daniel Shea, your host for this episode, which today is another installment in the Focus Researchers Talk. The Focus Researchers Talk is a bank of talk by those researchers who have enjoyed particular success in publishing their work. My guests on Researchers Talk tell us how they turn the data and the ideas into the many papers of impact which they have published. Today I'll be talking with Andreas Seller faculty at the CISPA Helmholtz Center for Information Security and professor for software engineering at Saarland University. Andreas has done highly influential research on the areas of automated debugging and specification mining and security testing. Andreas is also one of those few who have received two ERC advanced grants. So let's begin today's episode. Andreas Seller on Researchers Talk. Hi, Andreas. Welcome to the show. Hi, Daniel. Glad to be here. So, Andreas, today's interview is really not that much about what you research, because it's really actually an interview about how you do that research. And at this program, we basically break that down into how it is you collaborate, how it is that you read, and how it is that you write. So perhaps starting right off with that last one, writing, you've um, had quite an achievement, set of achievements with the ERC advanced grants that you've been able to secure. And I think to begin our talk here at uh, Scientific Writing, could you perhaps characterize for listeners the different hats, if you like, that you wear as the author of a paper versus the author of a grant proposal? At the author of a paper, I mostly talk about the past. That is research that I have done and what the results are. And when I say I, it is typically me and my students or my collaborators and me in whatever order. But um, we're mostly reporting things and we share our findings and we want to excite people about, well, the exciting things that we have found. When I write a grant proposal, this is more about the future. This is about exciting things that I want to do and for which I need money or resources in, in, in most general. The important thing for grant proposals is that you do not necessarily have a readership that is interested in the first place. So you may need to do some more motivation work or some more sales work in the beginning because you're also competing with several other researchers for the same limited resources which is sorry of course so you need to do quite an amount of um, salesmanship in order to make in order to make clear why you should be the person to be funded or why you why your research should be the research direction to be funded that's a very clear answer. So you've got this somewhat looking toward the past in the paper and looking toward the future in uh, the proposal itself. I like also what you say there about this idea of generating interest, excitement, perhaps, about the project when you're writing a grant proposal. How does that then reflect in the, let's say, the actual text that you're producing? I mean, do you think in slightly different words, types of sentences? Are you looking at the document in other eyes than you would if you were looking at a paper? When I write a grant proposal, interestingly, I start from the presentation. In some way, I start from the end. 
That is, if I wanted to explain what I'm doing on 10 slides in 10 minutes, or maybe just on one slide in 30 seconds, what would it be? And how can I condense the whole idea into a simple yet easy to grasp and novel and significant message? And I think about that a lot. So I wonder what is the novelty in 30 seconds? And uh, this then becomes the core idea of a grant proposal or actually also of the actual research because if I have a cool idea that fits in 30 seconds, I will do the research no matter what, even if <laughs> whether or not I get uh, a grant through or not. It, it's, it's just going to be much faster if I have money for it. <laughs> so, so this boiling down, this distillation to essences is then a major step, not only in the communication process from what I'm hearing, but also for your own let's say, motivation or clarity as to the actual research objectives or what needs to be done. Is, is, is that right? Yes, this is this core idea, this distillation, as you put it, this reduction, this sometimes it's simplification. This becomes the core motivation of my research. It becomes motivating for me. It also becomes motivating for my students. And you will also see this as a as a core idea later on in the papers we write. So in my research, I try to not come up with, well, um, with work that is mainly incremental. I do as much incremental work as everybody else. But the papers that I really like are those where I come up with something that is new, that is relevant, that hasn't been done before. And yet you can distill the core idea in a short message where people say, oh, I hadn't thought of that yet. I wonder if you've perhaps encountered uh, as a leader of a research group amongst, let's say, novice or new members in the group, this, this aversion somewhat to this idea of simplifying down to a message. I know that in my work, I, I help um, scientists write and publish. And I know that in my work, people who are earlier on in their career can sometimes almost have a reaction against that as if, you know, their research was just so complex and it needs to be that way. But you're clearly showing here the value of, of, of locating an essence and being able to use it. Yes, I'm well aware of this attitude. The thing is, see, people are very much in love with their research. They go through great pains in really showing, in really exploring every detail, which can take months or years. And then boiling things down to a headline, to a tweet, well, a post on X these days, is something that uh, I've found many people find insulting because it simply doesn't capture the every single detail, every single hair of their work, and they feel it is insulting to boil it down to a simple message. Another attitude I've also found is that when you talk to people, when, I, when I'm talking to people, I do a lot of um, internal uh, grant consulting these days. And when I ask them, so is this the following sentence? Is this what it, is this what, is this was it, what it boils down to? And then they say, no, that's not it. This sounds far too simple. I say, well, but you have to bring it down to some, to some, to, to some, to some short stuff. If you want to have your research actually being taken, if you have, if you want to have your research actually being adopted by others, and if you take, I think if you take the attitude of my baby is so beautiful and I want everyone to look at every pore of it, that is understandable. But I think if you want to really have impact, you need to live with the fact that um, people will reduce your influence to some short sentences and if that's the case if you have impact anyway that you will be reduced to, to whatever fits on your tombstone for instance or in your obituary 
Well, then you may do it. Then you may just as well do it yourself from the very beginning, which gives you more control over your message and how you want to be how you want to be remembered or how you want to be known. I often say to people in in this similar situation that, and this is something I find myself falling back on often, helping scientists write is 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 digging down to purposes. So often, just simply asking the question why to a choice in methodology to, you know, a statement of significance or something along those lines. And, and, and what I notice is just, just what you're saying really is that very many researchers love their research just cause, right? It's, <laughs> it's enough for the research to be that way. But the, the, in, the interesting perspective to take, I think, to be successful in publication is to see what will other people love about my research? The question is also, of course, who should your audience be at this point, or who are the ones who should love your research? If it's sufficient for you to be well-known and well-appreciated by maybe just a handful of people on the planet, but these people really matter to you, or maybe they matter to the community, so go for it. If you want to be known widely in your community, and possibly less appreciated by those people who are the intellectual leaders because what you do eventually is maybe sounds too simple because people can actually reduce it to a simple sentence. That's also that's also an opportunity. However, at some point, I also think that um, we as scientists, we do have some duty towards the society that pays us. We are mostly funded by taxpayers. So I think it is also our duty to communicate our research in a way such that the taxpayers knows where their money went, such that society can see what the value is. And for this, you have to be able to explain what you're doing, not only to the best colleagues in the field, but you also have to be able to explain what you're doing, well, maybe to politicians, to donors, whoever, because they may at some point decide on whether things get funded, where, fun, where, where things will be funded, and whether science at all actually gets funded. And these folks who make the decisions will also need stories for their, for, well, again, telling their or explaining their decisions to their electorate, for instance. So a simple story that captures the value of your work can go a very long way. You've said in a very, uh, in a different connection anyway, in a different interview that I found posted at your institute, you were talking about, um, and, and, and what you say here just makes me think of it, you were talking about the connections between journalism and science. And, and we've covered now two different, very different text types. So a grant proposal and perhaps what you might call science communication, reaching out to the public or to policymakers. But I had the sense in that interview that um, you were also talking about how journalism and science can actually meet to bring us back full circle to inside of a research paper itself, inside of a conference um, uh, contribution. So I guess my question is, is uh, well, you gave, just to give you some context, perhaps you'll even remember, you gave the example there of a title that you picked early on in your career. Yesterday, my program worked. Today, it does not. And why? <laughs> and, and, this was, and this was sort of your jumping off point for that, that thought about the connections between science and journalism. And, and my question would be, like, in the area of research papers itself, where would we want to perhaps ramp up a bit of the journalism? And where would you might want to be careful on how much journalism came into a paper? In a research paper, there are typically different sections with a different purpose. At the beginning, you have a motivation in which you explain why you are doing this research, why this research matters, and why in particular it should matter to the person who reads the paper. And for this, it's, I think, very important to apply classic journalistic mechanisms such as setting a context, explaining things in one sentence, in three sentences, in five sentences, whatsoever, pyramid model possibly, and clearly stating why this is important. Maybe not going too much into details at this point, but uh, for instance, providing an example, providing a story, making a story out of the whole thing. 
this is for the motivation. This is where you sell your paper. This is where you sell your idea. The later parts, the technical parts, this is where you talk to scientists again. And this is where you can put in all the details about your work, all the little results, all the numbers, all the considerations back and forth. This is all this. This is all the space for complexity. This is not so much about storytelling. This is not so much about selling. This is about delivering. And at the end, at the, at the conclusion, you can go back into some more journalistic mode and recapitulate what has just been said and what this means in the grand scheme of things. So there's places both for telling things generally to the public, possibly even laymen. Then there's space for telling things to the public in your field. In my case, for instance, computer science. Yeah, and as you progress through the paper, then it goes more and more into, into experts. At some point, the handful of people who may actually, who may actually want to uh, reproduce your work or who may want to build on your work, maybe it's more than a handful. And then at the end, you can go back and, uh, as, again, uh, assume the layman uh, position, explaining things, why they mattered after all. But it's important to keep all these different perspectives in mind and keep the different audiences in mind because you uh, need to talk to folks in appropriate language and give appropriate examples. Layman will, layman will be, for instance, will simply be put off if you start your, if you start your paper with, uh, with uh, say, uh, uh, definition, uh, lemmata, proof, definition, lemmata, proof, whatever, without giving them a bit of context what in which your research is set and, and why it matters. And that's something that I find this is difficult for many researchers taking, taking this external perspective and also taking the perspective of a person who may not be as smart or as or as much as an expert as they are. But this very vivid picture that you've just given of the breakdown of how a paper works from the perspectives of different readers and how those functions get picked up in different parts of the text. I mean, this this I think gives particularly early career researchers, a wonderful insight as to, well, why is a paper actually the way it is? But what really caught my attention and what you're saying there is even later, deeper into the paper, say down into the methods or a theory part, um, you're still trying to provide, let's say, some, well, look as to the grander scheme of things. So it's like you don't just give this theorem just because, right? It, it, it's, it's logically locked into very many other moves that you've made in that particular study. So it has a, a reason for being there. So in a sense, you are always still talking about the entire project, even if you're deep down in details that are really only meant for a small circle of experts, right? Yes, you start with a, you start with the big watch as a whole. This is a watch, tells the time, it's on your wrist, super, it's super, super useful, you, can, you, you never miss a train again if you have time on your wrist, simple example. But then we go into all the clockwork and all, all, all the little details, and there's so much beauty in every single dented wheel and all this stuff, and I'm explaining this with all the love there is. But of course, this always gets back, how does every single piece of this beautiful machinery contribute to the overall goal, <clears throat> for instance, putting the time on your wrist. And you have to connect all these pieces together, just like the wheels of a clockwork all fit together to achieve a greater whole. Wonderful. I have a, a, a real good takeaway image that. <laughs> and that brings me a transition uh, space over into reading, as I've mentioned. Um, we've been talking certainly a bit about how it is that you go about writing, but if I just say to you, just sort of almost associatively, scientific reading, what are some of the first ideas that sort of pop into your head, if you like? I'm, a, I'm an avid reader, notably as a reviewer. So I frequently get papers into my hands that will be published only months later which brings me into the interesting uh, position of me knowing about things which I'm not supposed to share or build on until the papers are actually published. 
But it turns out that um, reviewing things is one of my main sources, A, of staying afloat of things, that is knowing what's going on and what the current trends are, uh, but also B, always getting new insights about how things, how things work and how and also, again, <laughs> putting this back to writing, which writing techniques work, but also also learning uh, what should what should not be done. Um, after that, besides my work as by as as a reviewer, I read papers when being pointed to. So I get recommendations from my own students, or uh, when I'm looking for papers myself that I am that I can present to my students as part of teaching. But um, in general, all of this goes by recommendation or by duty. The idea of me as a researcher going through whatever the proceedings of a big conference, we're talking about hundreds of papers there each with whatever 10 pages. So we're talking, if, if these proceedings of conferences were printed, we're talking the size of phone books, not to speak about all the material that appears in, that appears in journals, not to even to speak about all the papers that are being uh, placed on public repositories like archive these days. It's impossible to, it's impossible to stay afloat of things. So to some extent, I need to be I need to rely on the recommendations of others, sometimes on social media, for instance. Hey, look at this paper, which does X. And then again, yeah, that brings me, to the previous play, brings me back to the previous part. My time is limited, so I need to focus on a couple of papers. And I would rather focus on papers that I find make a significant, that are new, but, are from, but where I think these make a significant contribution rather than being yet another incremental addition to the state of the art. And in some way, these would also be papers where I can say, okay, this paper makes the following contribution and I can summarize this in a, in a, in a short number of sentences or even a short number of words. It is amazing how that returns, this idea of essence. In fact, I was, I was speaking with a, um, a, a network scientist and also someone who's um, written about uh, scientific communication, uh, Jari Saramaki, and he had to say another thing to think about when it comes to these essences, uh, Andreas, that you're talking about is this idea that by word of mouth, I mean, you've just made it very clear that recommendations are an important thing. So if a paper is so crystal clear that you or anyone else can kind of turn around and really pass on its message without there being something lost in the translation, then that paper, that paper certainly has succeeded uh, for its readers. Yes, you have to think about, um, you have to think about scientific knowledge <laughs> to some extent also being propagated like memes, you know, you have have some idea, and it is it is not necessarily the paper with all the gory details that get that gets passed on. It's important for you as a researcher to know here's this cool thing, and it is described in this paper, and this is where I can find all the gory details. That's all fine, but it's actually more, but it's actually not the papers themselves that get passed around. It's more story, the stories that are that are described in these papers, the basic ideas that are in these papers, because this is all the stuff that you can remember. The gory details is what you go and look into as soon as you go and uh, reproduce some work or try to build on some work. That's when you really dig down into things. But the number of people who dig down into your paper in order to reproduce things, this is uh, much, much lower than, hopefully, the number of people who talk about your paper. But then... Having people talking about your paper is already quite an achievement, given the number of papers that are that are being produced. So you need to come up with uh, quite a message to make a difference there. And that's something that I'd like to also pursue on this idea of reading for research purposes. Um, so reading basically as an act. I mean, when we think, when the average person and perhaps even the scientist thinks of reading, we imagine things quieting down and slowing down slightly. And yet, I think everyone knows that life today is not that way and certainly not for a scientist. I've been in very many labs to see that it's a very busy life for sure. And um, I wonder it is how it is that you you go about that then. How is it that you really, in your day, incorporate a reading routine? 
in my day, I incorporated reading routine in a very simple manner. <laughs> I have a, I have a stream of, uh, I have a stream of researchers on uh, Twitter and other social uh, X on X and other social networks these days, whom I very much trust, whom I trust for their taste, and whom I very admire for their work. And whatever they recommend, I, whatever they recommend, I look into that. And this can be something like two, three papers a week. But this is all there is. I would imagine that to, I would imagine that if I were a better researcher, I, I, I'd start a reading routine like a, like a routine of brushing my teeth every, every day. I pick a new paper and I try to pick up things. But in fact, I pick up I pick up papers only as a only as a second effect, namely, when somebody has pointed me to it, so I try to, so I try to get afloat. I try to get, I, I try to interact with folks. I attend presentations and I, and 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 I, and I and I catch stuff, and then I know, oh, this is an interesting idea, and this is then how I eventually get to read the paper. But it's not like I'm starting with reading a couple of papers in the first place. It's the, it's the memes and it's the ideas that come first that's the, that that stay stuck in my mind and as soon as i want to get into the in, in, as soon as i want to get into the details or as soon as i need to think about what whether i can recommend a paper to my students to my readers that's when i dig into the actual that's when i dig into the actual literature this is inevitably leading us into uh, the third thing that I'd like to touch upon um, in the area of research communication, uh, talking with you, Andreas, and it's uh, perhaps a bit before my schedule, but it's just reappearing again and again. And this is idea. This is the idea of your collaborative work, the network behind what it is that you do in your research. You make that apparent in very much uh, of what you're saying here. I mean, just this idea of how it is that you read and the recommendation basis upon which you're building. If, if we might like just imagine that a scientific network, for lack of a better word, a scientific network is all of the people who are involved in your research besides you, with whom you make your research, exchange ideas, actually collaborate on papers and so on and so forth. How is it that you would characterize its contribution to your own research success, to your own generation of ideas and other such important moments in different projects? I value, I extremely value the interaction with my esteemed colleagues. And I specifically visit venues like scientific conferences, uh, notably, but also a bit more private venues specifically to interact with my colleagues as much as I can and to talk about research as much as I can. So, and there's multiple venues for that. I already mentioned a bit of social networks where I, where I get, where I, where I, where I get um, current recommendations, but there's not so much interactions in there. Um, a bit more interactions is with conferences, scientific conferences, where I get uh, recent trends by the papers that are published or by the papers which I review. But I also specifically am looking for events where I am hanging out with a set of students for, uh, sorry, with a set of researchers uh, for maybe a couple of days and where we can spend lots of time together to elaborate ideas and also to get to exchange uh, <clears throat> to exchange our latest and greatest. Uh, there, in particular, there's two events of that kind. So first, I'm a member of a, an IFIB working group. IFIB is the International Federation of Information Processing, and this is a group of uh, this working group is a group of scientists that uh, meets about um, one to <clears throat> once to twice every year. There I have a couple of really, really great colleagues who are working in fields that are similar to mine. And every time we can exchange the latest and greatest and we hang out for a couple of days and this is awesome. The other thing is even better. This is um, so-called Dachstuhl seminars. Dachstuhl is a place here in uh, northern Saarland. And this is a castle where every week there uh, is a couple, there are seminars going on dedicated to specific scientific questions in the field of computer science. And this is where you have meetings of something like 20 to 50 people. 
And inevitably, these are always new mixes of people where we talk about cutting edge research. And these are uh, the most inspiring events during my and during uh, the year that I can attend. Um, by the way, if you ever get an invitation to a Dachstuhl seminar and you've never been there, don't hesitate a second, go for it. It's one of the best things you can have as a computer science researcher. And this interaction and the ability to interact with other colleagues who have time, uh, just as I have time because I devoted my time to that, in front of a whiteboard and just exchange a couple of ideas Oh, this has been the source of so many great ideas. I um, definitely long for these things. But so, so many of these ideas eventually come out of social interaction. And it is this precise social interaction that then leads to joint ideas, to collaborations, and to good science. That shows the importance of these sorts of events, these sorts of node points where people can actually connect, where, as you say, that they have time, they've arrived, and they're willing to share ideas. It doesn't necessarily need to be a formal finished product, but I'm getting the sense that people are really talking openly about current work. Is is, is that the vibe that, that is at these different places like the Dachstuhl? Yes. You see... I am um, so as a scientist, I travel a lot and I travel a lot to places, to conferences. And I think that this is something that we should do less because of the because of the impact it has on the climate as uh, as responsible people, we should actually not meet that often. On the other hand, it is precisely in these meetings when you're meeting physically, and when you have invested time into the event, when you've said to everyone, hey, I will be off for a week or so. I will not be answering my mail for a week or so. I will not be with my family for a week or so because I will be away. I have devoted this very week to just interactions with my colleagues in order to be creative, in order to be in front of a whiteboard and sketching stuff. When you're even... <laughs> Also, when you're hanging out with a beer with colleagues, you get in, you get get such valuable knowledge and insights into new trends. <sighs> this is something that you cannot easily replicate in a video meeting. Video meetings are great for for discussing facts, for talking about numbers, decisions, whatsoever. There's absolutely no, for for communicating. There's absolutely no need to meet physically for that. But as it comes to devoting time and being creative together, ah, oh, we still haven't found a good way to. We still haven't found a good way to do this uh, without meeting physically. One of the aims of this podcast is really to reach out to early career researchers and to give them, let's say, a leg up in understanding what it is when it comes to all of this communication and this reading and this writing and so on. And what I really love about what you've just said there and how. Now, honestly, you, you've put it is that it shows the importance of getting to meetings, really connecting with other people because you find inspiration. But I'm imagining also in a practical matter, you find connection. You know, you find other people who you can turn to or who might turn to you for another project, for a visitation at a, a, a different research institute who bounce an idea off of you and wow, there's a collaboration then down the line. Um, so it has this clearly scientific ideas end to it, but it also brings down really to home this, uh, this idea that, hey, we're doing this all together. That's why we talk about research communities. <laughs> perfectly, perfectly valid. As a, as a young researcher, do your best to get in touch with other researchers, be they young or old. It doesn't make that much of a difference. Talk to young researchers who want to change the world. Talk to old researchers who have done their share or not in changing the world and bounce off your ideas and get pointers to get pointers to more interesting, get pointers to more interesting stuff. Spend time together and think about how you could combine your, your, in your, your specific approaches. Also, 
talk to people outside of your domain, find out what is happening in other fields, find out, find out how your research could possibly be combined or used in or with other fields. Go outside or go outside of your box and try to figure out, hey, uh, these things that those people are doing over there sounds sounds like something that we people over here might have a solution to. And these are all things that you well that you that you're not going to get very much by staying in your field and um, by staying in your field and simply staying in the mainstream. Now, uh, Andreas, you're going to be a researcher that uh, very many of my listeners will be looking up to, who have probably cited you, who are uh, following your work uh, with great interest. I wonder if you could look back in your career and. And find a moment where something like that obviously has occurred for you, where a connection was sparked, a new idea came up, where you crossed over a disciplinary line and, and, and through that action actually profited in your research work because of it. There's been a quite a, there's been quite a number of, um, of times during my career where I went into entirely new research directions, sometimes inspired by others, sometimes simply because simply simply because I caught up some idea at an event uh, where I met people who were not inside my field. Um, for instance, um, and this may be, and this is one of my most cited papers. Um, <clears throat> and this was, this was interesting. I met with a, I met with a colleague of mine, Stefan Diel at the time, who was working on graph visualizations. And he wondered, uh, he wondered if we could go and visualize the history of a piece of program. And it happened to be that I knew about how to analyze or that I knew how such histories of changes to program code would be stored. And so we said, actually, yeah, I'm an expert in that. So let's see if we can visualize things. And out of that collaboration uh, became some became something that we later that that is now today known as mining software repositories in general, because we quickly found out that um, the open source data that was available on how software was changed over time that this was actually a treasure trove of information that could be mined, that could be analyzed. It could also be visualized as were as was our, our original idea. But uh, first and foremost, one can do one could do lots and lots of data mining and later machine learning and predictions on it. It just was a huge treasure trove of data that we had found. And um, this would never have happened if well, if the two of us, if the two of us had not met in the first place, then came a couple of um, very gifted PhD students coming to that. One of them was uh, Tom Zimmerman, who currently is the chair of ACM Sixsoft and who has way more publications and citations than I have these days. Uh, now a very uh, a very influential researcher at uh, Microsoft, still doing lots and lots of data mining, but and who actually pointed us to the fact that, you know, uh, there's there's all this data around and you can actually, we can actually apply standard mining, standard data mining techniques to it. So first came a meeting where we found, hey, we could analyze this data. And then came a student who said, you know, um, what, you, what you're actually doing here is data mining and I can give you some more ideas on how to mine all this data. And this is where, well, this this was one of the very first papers or maybe a handful of papers that now today is a very established research direction with its own conference and hundreds and hundreds of researchers publishing papers uh, on the field every year. And all of this came out of some initial meeting with folks, uh, with, with, with folks who, who had a different perspective uh, and where our different perspectives then joined to form something that was unique that hadn't existed before. This yeah, is one example in there. That's a, that's a, that's a 
perfect example of it. <laughs> I, I think that really drives the point home of, of how valuable that can be. And that also leads me on to another part of what I consider the scientific network. I mean, you mentioned there that you had a few brilliant PhDs on the project who also gave direction to what was happening. So in my opinion as well, the institute in which a researcher is situated, the teaching that a researcher does, the mentoring as well, or the leading of a group, all of this is as well part of that uh, network, which we've begun by talking about these important meetings that you can have and these wonderful exchanges that you can have with your peers. How might you characterize the effect that that end of your network has had on your career? You've given us a, a brief view that somebody in your group can certainly change the direction of, of, of work that's being done, but could you broaden that picture a bit as to how your group and your teaching also contribute there? Um, in terms of uh, my group, I'm looking for, I'm, I'm constantly hiring new PhD students, for instance, and when I'm, look at, when I'm hiring them, I'm looking at their expertise, and I try to bring in folks who do something, who are an expert in some field that I don't know enough about. Uh, over time, I've hired people in compiler construction, which is somewhat outside my field. I've hired people in machine learning. I have hired uh, I've hired people in programming languages. So, and all these folks brought in unique expertise and made me learn, made me learn lots of things. And I'm always trying to to hire folks and to work with folks who are outside of my comfort zone because I find that being and because I find that by combining techniques that are not in my core field with those techniques that are in my cold cold field this is where I can make a real difference and of course the folks whom I'm whom I'm working with so right now I'm right now I'm I'm currently preparing my first paper with symbolic analysis and we're preparing papers on programming languages and whatnot and I've published it so my mainstream of papers has published has been published at software engineering conferences but I also have papers in security venues in machine learning ven- venues in programming language venues and uh, symbolic reasoning venues so. All of these and, and all of these things happen to become happen to come out because of some cooperation, some cooperation with others. What helps, of course, and in particular, uh, <clears throat> when you do not yet get invited to whatever meetings, as in Dachstuhl, what helps, of course, is being at an institution where you do have. Uh, experts for for lots of fields around experts who also are very happy to do uh, exciting research and experts who also want to do exciting research with you and uh, being in a place like Saarbrücken uh, with its two Max Planck institutes now with CISPA and a great department where we have pretty much world-leading experts for every aspect of computer science you always have somebody whom you whom, whom you can ask. Hi, I have this question about um, I have this question about natural language processing. I'd like to classify these things into A's and B's and whatnot. You can always ask someone, and this person will immediately give you pointers on what to do and what not to do. Have a look at this technique. Have a look at this other technique. And most importantly, this is not going to work. This is also not going to work. And this is also not going to work. Go for this and that. Boom, and this is this is research which, of course, um, my colleagues who are experts in the field can produce within seconds. And this, but this, but for me, this this is this is extremely valuable because if I wouldn't have their expertise, I would have to find that out what they just told me that some things work and some things work less well. Uh, I would ha- it would take me weeks, months to find out, and I would actually never know whether it's me being an idiot that this thing doesn't work, or maybe it's just because others also already have found that this particular thing does not work. And uh, so being in an environment where you're practically surrounded by plenty of experts in all sorts of directions can help a lot. And 
I would also encourage young researchers here at, the, at this point. Um, uh, if you're not as if if you don't find yourself at such an institution, try spending a couple of weeks or months in an institution which provides these things in a place where you can where you can meet those folks. And um, yes, just a few interactions over some coffee or at a lunch break or whatever can get you very far. Again, the picture that you paint here is is wonderful and 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 extremely valuable. I know for my listeners, and it shows something that. People don't necessarily immediately associate with scientific work and scientists and the way that they act. It shows that there's an element of emotion, psychology, personality at work when it comes to being successful in science. I mean, being the kind of person who reaches out, who's willing to be not suspicious, but sharing, being the sort of person who, as you said earlier, gets outside of their comfort zone because of the way they compile their group. Um, these sorts of things are not necessarily what many people, I think, would immediately associate with the scientists. I mean, the idea that you're technically skilled and very knowledgeable in an area, that is, of course, in your case, the area that you're talking about, a given. But that's not enough in itself, is it? Well, it depends on, your, on how you define success in the end. If you, you can be a very successful scientist simply sitting in your corner of the world and coming up to great insights, great theories whatsoever, and just publishing them. But I, but I think of science as a social process. I think of scientists as, being, as social beings, as unsocial as they may sometimes appear. But... After all, there are, after all, we as scientists, we're all humans. We are longing for meaning in our daily work, thereby indirectly also longing for recognition. Longing for recognition, well, uh, maybe not today, but at least in some foreseeable future during our lifetime. Maybe not after our lifetime. Well, we have, maybe we hope for that. But... All these are indeed, all these are social activities, and therefore it also helps to see science or overall as a social activity where your job is to actually uh, to actually enrich the lives of other scientists with something that is useful, with direction, and at some point also with stories. Um, I'd like to add one other thing here. One important factor in one important factor in um, being impactful here is another social activity, and this is sharing, sharing of research data, sharing of research infrastructure, sharing whatever you can. If you share your tools, you share your data rather than keeping it to yourself. You will get rewarded in many ways because other people will build on your stuff and other people, therefore, A, will be citing you. Well, that's straightforward. But more importantly, they will work with with whatever you provide and they will remember your stuff and they will, again, recommend what you shared, uh, recommend this to to their students and their colleagues. So not only as scientists should we produce memes and stories and, of course, great research insights. No, we should also share the things we build, the share the things that we experiment with. Because this is, at least in my perspective, this was, one, this was actually one of the main reasons I went to academia I was very inspired by the open source movement. I like the idea of producing code that people all over the world would use at some point, which again is a social activity. And I always said that we built so much of our stuff on open source, we really should give back to the community. And this is why uh, I also are, with very, very few exceptions, share every piece of code that we produce. We share the data that we have. And I hope that other people will find that useful. And that's uh, and this, I think, to some extent has contributed to my 
success, but I don't see this as success. I see this as, as actually, actually, I see this as a duty of researchers who profit from the work of others also to give that back to others. That's wonderful. To close out, Andreas, uh, one of the aims of this podcast is also to give in some way, and that is just simply make the research work better for more people. Um, it's our belief that there are researchers out there who, for lack of a full appreciation of the communication end of the work, sometimes don't succeed in the way that they would want to or, or could have. And with that in mind, um, just in a practical manner to help authors submit better papers, to help chairs or editors make better decisions or reviewers to do their work better or anything that occurs to you, even teaching or anything else that you've mentioned here, sharing, um, what would be the one thing that you would reach out from this platform and say, hey, we can improve things if we dot, dot, dot. We can improve things a lot if we explain the things we're doing to others. And if these others are invited to comment on what they understood, what they didn't understand, and how you can be better at communicating. So for my personal research, I always try to look at it at the eyes of somebody external, maybe of a layman, and I wonder what is it that this person could take of this. And I am, I think I am pretty good at that. Um, actually, sometimes I do the joke and I say, I have actually very few problems of appearing dumb, but maybe that's because I am, but, but at least it works for me. No, but the thing is that, um, the thing is that if you understand how to communicate to others, you can only do so by seeing your work through the eyes of others. And if you don't have that skill by birth, whatever well, few of us have, what helps is simply asking you, asking colleagues for a critical review of whatever you're doing and ask them, what is it that you understand? How can we make things better? So have your, so, so try to get a couple of trusted colleagues, try to, Try to have them read your stuff, help them by reading their stuff, and help each other mutually by in, in, in improving your own communication skills. And the more, the, the, the more you can do that, the more you will understand what others see in your work, what they like. And this will help you a lot in making your work not only accessible to others, but also understandable by others. And this will also help, again, then shape your work in a way that it's most useful to everyone. That was a long answer, right? So <laughs> That was an answer that was very much on point, though. Thank, <laughs> thank, you, thank you very much for that. Uh, well, uh, thank you, Andreas. And that is Andreas Zeller. He is faculty at the CISPA Helmholtz Center for Information Security and professor for software engineering at Saarland University. This is goodbye from me to Andreas. Goodbye. Goodbye, everyone. Hope to hear and, more from you. And this is goodbye to all of my listeners. Bye-bye. And until next time here on this Focus Researchers Talk.